titled this morning's message, Give Thanks. It had a different name back in June or July, whenever it was, when I was prepared to deliver it the first time. But on that day, you may recall, I had been in the hospital. I'm happy to tell you I have recovered, and I'm sure Pastor Chris will as well. And so, let's pray. Father, your goodness to us overwhelms us. And on a cool day in November, we, we pause. We pause after a week of giving thanks and handing over credit cards and, and preparing for blessings that we, will, that we will bestow on others in the month to come. But Lord, today we come with a very special purpose. We come to an all-powerful Savior. We come to your mercy seat and we plead the blood of our Savior. Strengthen us this morning in the inner man from your inexhaustible word, we pray. We would see Jesus. Amen. The Los Angeles County Museum of Art is home to this controversial painting from 1929. In this work titled The Treachery of Images, Belgian, doesn't look controversial, does it? <laughs> the Belgian surrealist artist Rene Magritte juxtaposes a universally recognizable object. What is it? A pipe. Over a simple phrase in cursive script. Ceci n'est pas un pipe. This French phrase is translated in English. Does anyone know? This is not a pipe. <laughs> Hence the controversy. Later in life, Magritte is reported to have said, the famous pipe, how people reproached me for it. And yet, could you stuff my pipe? No, it's just a representation, is it not? So if I had written on my picture, this is a pipe, I'd have been lying. What Monsieur Magritte was exploring in a playful way that has no doubt accounted for countless wasted hours of discussion and debate in art history classes was the nature of symbolism. What is a symbol? His painting of a pipe is a painting of a pipe and not an actual pipe. You can't argue that. This accumulation of pigments suspended in oil on a piece of canvas stretched over a wooden chassis is an illustration, a representation, a symbol of a pipe. To take this a step further, one could argue that while these same elements could have been used to illustrate a completely different object, this particular configuration of wood, canvas, oil, pigment could not possibly be a representation of anything else. And here lies the genius of his work. If not for the inscription, 
observers would have said to themselves, oh, that's a pipe. And they would have moved on and never given another thought. We wouldn't be talking about his painting today. Magritte was exploring the tension of union and distinction between the tangible and the intangible, between the object and the idea of the object. And this symbol is clearly understood. Monsieur Magritte intended us to think of a pipe. Throughout the history of God's people, he's used a variety of simple objects to serve as symbols to help them remember important truths and as signs to them and to others of what he had done, of who his people were, and of what he would do in the future. We've spoken in the past about how the children of Israel used, and many still do today, stones of remembrance as a reminder to themselves, their children, and anyone else who would understand them of God's faithfulness. Perhaps you have a stone like this one. I understand these were distributed during the completion or during the construction of this worship center in which you are now seated. And they are inscribed, Faithful God. How appropriate. Over the course of history, the Jews developed a complex liturgy of questions and answers and observances and partakings that they practiced every year at Passover. The Passover meal began as God freed them from bondage, from slavery in Egypt, and is recounted several times in Scripture and is still celebrated to this day. It is lengthy, it is complicated, and it is full of ritual. It contains more symbols then you can shake a stick at, which would be a violation of Torah since the Passover was a Sabbath and shaking a stick would be considered work. <laughs> so we won't shake a stick. The evening of Passover is replete with reminders of God's promises fulfilled, his faithfulness to his covenant and to his covenant people. No part of the Passover meal lacks purpose and careful attention is paid to ensure that every participant of every age, every generation, hears and understands the purpose of every part of that Seder meal. It is a time for families to remember, to celebrate, to worship, and to anticipate the future fulfillment of prophecy. Their evening ends, in fact, with a shout, the Shana Habacha! Yerushalayim, next year in Jerusalem. They're anticipating something. They're anticipating God's fulfillment. The order of the Passover meal, or Seder, is set forth today in a Hebrew text. Does anyone know what they call that thing? It's called a Haggadah. That's a good... You clear the bagel out of the back of your throat when you say that. <laughs> the order of the Passover meal or Seder is set forth today in a Hebrew text called a Haggadah, meaning telling. This is how observant Jews fulfill the scriptural commandment in Exodus 13, 8, to tell your son of the liberation of the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Every symbol has a purpose, and they explain them during the meal. But certain symbols remain a mystery. At the heart of the Passover meal is a very special bread. 
Passover marks the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The bread is a big deal. Listen, you might be able to pull off a successful Seder meal without the gefilte fish, but if you ain't got matzah, you ain't got a Seder. What's so special about this bread? It's all about the symbolism. With any other bread, you can pretty much take your time. Mix the water and the flour, a little salt, sugar, maybe some yeast, knead up the lump, let it rise, knead it again, and into the oven it goes. But not this bread. Why? Because to the Jew, leaven, or yeast as we call it, is symbolic of sin. Whether you realize it or not, yeast is everywhere. It's in the air. And so they clean, and they clean, and not a single corner is left unbrushed. But because it is physically impossible to eliminate the leaven even from the air, when it comes time to make this bread, mama starts mixing and the clock starts ticking. Water and flour only in this bread, and it's forbidden to let the loaf rest even a second from the time the mixing begins, lest any airborne yeast have an opportunity to get to work on it. That oven, it had better be hot, because according to the strictest convention, you're allowed only 18 minutes, 18 minutes from start to finish. Ever wonder why there's little holes? What these little holes come from and why the matzah have little brown spots everywhere it's bubbled, these holes help the bread cook faster and they're in tidy little rows because the fastest way to pierce that bread is with a special roller. Got to keep it moving. So they mix it, knead it, roll it out nice and thin, pierce it, and into the oven it goes. Now this is where it gets really mysterious. Turn with me to Luke 22. And if you'd please stand, we're going to read this together. Luke if you can stand and turn at the same time. But Luke 22, please. Beginning at verse 7. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. And uh, if, if you are not and you wish to, the words will be on the screen for you. Luke 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter to John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told him, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourself. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. 
For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. You may be seated. Lord, add his blessing to his reading of his word. Jesus and his disciples gathered on the 13th day of the Hebrew month Nisan, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for a Passover meal. They were gathered for a Seder meal. According to the Haggadah, there are 14 parts of this ritual. In preparation for the meal, three matzahs. Did you catch that? Not one, not two, but three loaves of unleavened bread. Three of them, three of them, three loaves, unleavened and of the same essence, are prepared ahead of time and placed in a white cloth bag, as you see here. During the fourth part of the meal, the yachatz, the middle loaf of the three is taken out and it is broken. That loaf has a name, meet the afikomen. The smaller part of the middle loaf is returned to the bag, while the larger piece, the afikomen, is wrapped in cloth and hidden away. There's a wide range of explanations as to what this word afikomen means. Most Jews today would say, eh, it means dessert because it's eaten at the end of the meal. But in reality, it says, that which is to come, or that which comes later. Some Messianic Jews have understood this word to mean, he came. And they call it the Afikoman. The smaller part of that middle loaf is returned to the bag while the larger piece, the afikoman, is wrapped in cloth and hidden away, the broken bread. Next comes the Magid, a detailed remembrance of how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. This is a big part of the Passover time for the Jews. Fast forward to near the end of the ritual. After a large meal, we finally reach the 11th part, the tzafun, which means hidden. This is where the afikomen is recovered from its resting place, raised up in celebration and eaten. This is the afikomen. First Corinthians eleven twenty three reads, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What do we have in this symbol? We have an unleavened loaf, the middle loaf of three unleavened loaves, all of the same essence, 
It is pierced. It is striped. It is bruised. It is separated from the other two. It is broken. It is wrapped. It is hidden away. It is found and it is raised up. Here at the heart of this ancient Jewish remembrance, we have the promised Messiah. And way back in the institution of the Passover meal on the night of the first Passover, we have the blood of animal sacrifices pooled on the threshold of a door, splashed on the doorposts and the lintel of their homes, a clear foreshadowing of the blood on the cross. Here is Christ prophesied at the first Passover and fulfilled at his last as he gathered with his disciples. On this day, the Paschal Lamb would be slaughtered. On this day, our Paschal Lamb would lay down his life for our sins. Somebody better say amen. By the way, as the season of our Lord's Advent is upon us, it's worth mentioning, you know the meaning of the name of the little town where Jesus was born, Bethlehem? Anybody know what that means? House of bread. Wow. It is so entirely appropriate that we should celebrate the Lord's table on this particular Sunday. Most of us have had our share of turkey this week. The technical term for this ordinance that we're doing today is the Eucharist. This comes from the, from the Greek word uh, eucharistos, meaning give thanks. And it comes from the text this morning where we read that when, when Jesus had given thanks, that's what that word is, eucharistos. He, he had given thanks. When he had given thanks, that's what this is called. We think of that as a Roman Catholic term, and consequently we use other less formal terms like the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. But let us not lose sight of the fact that this meal this Seder meal that Jesus was receiving with his disciples was a thanksgiving meal. The Seder meal is a time to give thanks for God as they remember his goodness, his faithfulness to his people. And it's a time to anticipate. They were remembering his faithfulness and they were staking their lives on it. This isn't the only Roman Catholic thing that we reject about this ordinance. As Protestants, we reject as false their dogma of transubstantiation, wherein they insist that the elements of the Eucharist become, in reality, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. They insist that while all that is accessible to the senses remains unchanged, that nonetheless, the elements become the very body of and blood of Christ. We reject that. Some Protestants have adopted a doctrine known as consubstantiation, wherein they believe that during the sacrament, the substance of the body and blood of Christ are present alongside the bread and the wine, so that when one partakes in the loaf and the cup, they're actually receiving the loaf and the body and the cup and the blood. Well, that view is actually relatively rare, although it's very often erroneously attributed to the Lutheran church. The father, however, of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, rejected both of these views. He taught instead something called sacramental union, a kind of spiritual union wherein the consecrated bread is united with the body of Christ 
and that the consecrated wine is united with the blood of Christ in much the same way as Christ's spirit was united with his physical body at the incarnation. So that when the elements are unchanged, the one who partakes of them really does eat and really does drink the physical body and blood of Christ. They had us and they lost us. <laughs> one more. The Reformed view is that Christ is spiritually present, spiritually present in the Lord's Supper. A real spiritual presence, but not substantially or particularly joined to the elements. This brings us to what I will lovingly refer to as the fight and fundy view, or if you will, the typical Baptistic view. It goes something like this. It's a celebration, a remembrance. The symbols are irrelevant. As long as we're thinking of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, we could use RC Cola and moon pies. Ceci n'est pas son corps. Here's the problem. Christ himself gave us a sign. He gave us a symbol. He gave us an ordinance. And it's nothing common. It's not something you can just pick up at the concession stand at a greater Beckley basketball game. It's a special sign. It requires preparation. But that's not the half of it. Yes, it's a unique sign, but it is so much more. Not because of the substance of the sign, but because of what it symbolizes. Not because of the substance of the symbol. And it sure as heaven is not because of some kind of hocus-pocus metaphysical shell game that we do beforehand. No, the true miracle is not in the symbol. The true, shocking, breathtaking miracle is in the thing symbolized. The single most precious substance that ever entered this universe, the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, the holy, the only begotten Son of God. Now that is something to remember. This shocking, grotesque symbol of the Old Covenant, the flesh and blood sacrifice of animals, would soon cease, and for good reason. These sacrifices were mere symbols, signs of the sacrifice to come, pictures that foreshadowed the flesh and blood sacrifice of our Savior, the perfect lamb. These weren't just any old lambs. You didn't just go out in the field and just grab the cheapest lamb you had. These were carefully, lovingly raised and meticulously chosen. They had to be spotless, perfect as any of God's little critters could be, even though most of them never fully grasped why God required a perfect spotless lamb, that was what they offered because that was what God required. But after Christ's sacrifice, no other sacrifice of flesh and blood would ever, ever, ever be needed or accepted. But he knew the value of those sacrifices. Jesus knew the impact that they had. He knew the importance of us coming face to face with the hideous consequences of our sin, death, and the shedding of blood. He knew that the people, his people, people like you and me would quickly forget that as memories faded into stories, we would quickly become so familiar with the idea of his sacrifice that we would need to be brought back intentionally, purposely, 
repeatedly to the cross, to the table, and to see the cross in its proper context of all the work of God throughout history in prophesying, preparing, and providing a Savior. And so I ask you this. If our Savior, on the night on which he was betrayed, held forth a simple loaf of unleavened bread and blessed it and broke it and said, this is my body. I have to ask you, how precious a sign is that bread? If our Lord, whose blood would soon flow in propitiation, a wrath-appeating sacrifice for your sin and for mine, if he offered this cup to his disciples and said, this is the new covenant of my blood, how precious a symbol is that liquid? We'll receive the Lord's table today. No incense will burn today. And no little bells will ring. That little cracker. That little cracker is just a cracker, and it will remain a cracker. But that little cracker symbolizes the bread of life. That little cup of grape juice. It's just a little cup of grape juice, and it'll remain a little cup of grape juice. But that juice is a sign of a new covenant. Written in red ink, our Savior's blood. Now, is that a truth worth celebrating? You better believe it is. But we cannot think of that sacrifice without pausing to remember our sin, which made it necessary. None of us is worthy. None of us is righteous. None seeks after God. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Your sin and my sin did that. Your sin and my sin put him on that cross. Your sin and mine. We're in the weight of the wrath of God on him. As he hung and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Somebody might say, Preacher, I had no part of that. I never sent him to the cross. Nobody ever paid for anything I did but me. Maybe you're right. But I have to ask you, May I ask you to consider his sacrifice once again. As sure as I stand here, I can tell you that if it was sufficient for an ordinary old music pastor like me, it is sufficient for you. If it was sufficient for everyone in this room who has trusted him as Savior, it is altogether sufficient for you. He took on his shoulders the full wrath of God almost 2,000 years ago and he bore it out willingly on the cross of agony and shame. And he endured it all. Why? For the joy that was set before him. Amen? The joy of union with us presently through his Holy Spirit and eternally with the Father who sent him. And so... 
The table is set. And we've come to remember, to partake, and to worship. If you're here today and you have trusted Christ as your Savior, we welcome you. Your Savior welcomes you to partake. There are no special requirements of membership. If you've been born again of the blood of Jesus Christ, you are part of this church. You're a part of the church. You're a part of this church. And we welcome you here today to participate. Perhaps, perhaps today is the day that you're hearing this and you're saying, well, I don't have a part of that. But I sure wish I did. Do you believe? Do you believe what he said? Do you believe that when he said, this is my body broken for you? Do you believe that when he hung on that cross, that he was speaking the truth? That he was accomplishing what he said he would accomplish? Just put your trust in him. Not just so that you can receive a snack this morning, but so that you can receive eternal life and fellowship and true union with him and with everyone in this room who has trusted him. And it's not a snack. It's a partaking of the body and blood of Christ. As we receive these elements this morning, we identify with Christ in a way that no one else possibly can. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Father, you've, you've called us today together that we may gather and that we may remember. We have expressed gratitude throughout this week. Many of us in various ways in our homes or in the homes of others have, have enjoyed the fellowship that you purchased for us. Even in a family group, we realize that true union in a family is only found when that family is united in Christ. And so we thank you for that special union that we have enjoyed. We thank you that, that our forefathers had the wisdom generations ago to, to set a day aside. But Father, our thankfulness is, is not dependent on some secular holiday. Our commitment to you is dependent what you've done for us. And so we praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen.